0: Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast, the top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. How's it going? And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and some hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive in the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 27th, 2023. So Lee, I wanted to kick off with something that I always think is fun, but I think the value is incredibly important too. But it was an article from Security Week and they just covered a military exercise for cyber warfare it was titled 11 countries take part in military cyber warfare exercise uh basically is the biggest military cyber warfare exercise in western europe uh, and it took place in estonia there were 34 teams from 11 countries and i think these things you know one of the things we always talk about in cybersecurity is you know getting the experience mark like how do you show you have as many years of experience as you as you do have and what is that experience entail because you know you can't just Say, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of like five major incidents. So now I have this great experience. A lot of people kind of learn from their first uh, intrusion they deal with or incident. That's where they kind of get their hands on for some of that stuff. So I think exercises like this uh, are hugely important. I know you've participated in CyberShield with me in the past, and there's always great lessons learned in those types of situations where it can be as real as you possibly can. You're dealing with the full scale of an attack, not just like you know on the day-to-day, maybe you deal with phishing emails and things like that at a organization, but then know what it really feels like to be compromised and know that you've been compromised for a while and how do you find those things and root those things out. It's, it does take some practice, and it's really good to get that experience, and these type of events really aid with that. So. I bring it up because I feel like if there's opportunities for you know security professionals to participate in any type of simulated exercise like this, I I think it's totally worth it. No, so I just want,
1: Yeah,
0: just wow. want to touch on that. So, what are your thoughts?
1: These are great, especially with, uh, so many people and organizations and countries come together. The more, the merrier. And I know we put on the workshops, and the reason that we do that is like you said getting to practice you never want to try and have your analysts learning or your threat hunters trying to learn during an incident because that's when the pressure comes in and you might have you know second guessing yourself and you know once you have doubt involved and like you're starting to freak out that's where mistakes are made now i'm not saying that through you know what we do and you know what we're trying to do at cyborg is going to remove all those mistakes but if you have a repeatable process or at least something you've done before, your body will go towards that and say, hey, this is familiar. This is how I know to go through the data and how to look for things that might be suspicious. And I think that's great, especially with that many people and countries come together. You have all that knowledge, all those different processes that you know you could learn off of other people. Um, it's, just, it's just amazing. I do like how you said <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be part of five incidents. (laughs) Um, Once again, like, yeah, that's where I learned on the job. But it's like, well, you know, do you really want to be learning there? Or do you want to learn how to get through the data first? And then if an incident happens, then you can start buying. But no, this is great. Really enjoy these types of things.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that some people you know may not put on their radar is if if you have a, a large enough security organization or team, where you actually have dedicated red teamers, you know, there's, you know, people do pen tests and they do some red teaming, but it it might be good to kind of do these types of things in an environment that is yours. So you can figure out your strengths and weaknesses with your own tooling and things like that. Sometimes that's the one thing that's taken away from some simulated stuff is you're kind of using what is usually open source or a specific range of tools. Um, So, you know, being able to practice kind of how you fight is also good too. So yeah, that's all I got. What do you got?
1: So the first uh, headline that I have is titled "Dota 2 Under Attack: How a V8 Bug Was Exploited in the Game." Now, um, at first, and this is by the Avast.io team or Decoded Avast.io team, and the first thing that popped in my head when I was scanning through my you know morning reads, I was like, well, you know, is this just going to cover a hack? Um, Because I know I I I've never really played Dota 2. I've played League of Legends. I watched some YouTube Do- Dota 2, and it kind of seems similar. And probably people are going to hate me for saying that because I'm sure there's the Dota 2 camp and then there's the League of Legends camp. Either way, I'm impartial. I'll just say that right now. But when I was researching this, I did find that Dota 2 has a big, big esports technology or community going on and then i stumbled across that the purse or the prize pool was 40.02 million dollars in 2021 so like you know i was like okay this is big like is it a hack to allow you to you know beat your opponents does it give you a competitive edge in the game you know so i started going down that route. it was not where i was going you know at all so what the what this team found or the vast team found was that there was a or dota 2 was built using an outdated Dynamic Link Library or DLO. Uh, and it was because they're using uh, the V or sorry, V8, which is the it's a Google's open source high performance JavaScript and WebAssembly engine written in C. So I'm not really a coder, but that gives me an idea of where this is going. So I see JavaScript uh, and I see C. So I'm thinking code. So once again, that's outside my boundaries. But it what I don't have to understand that, but what I see is that it's vulnerable on operating systems windows 7 and later mac os 10.12 plus and linux systems so this is you know a wide range it's got a big wide range of uh targets that it can hit and the uh, platforms that it can infect so once again continue down the, this route to see what it was and find out that it leads to remote code execution so you know the idea was that they would host this custom gameplay and then they would use the code to create a backdoor on someone's computer. So all that pull money aside, you know, that really wasn't the target. I could see that, you know, it's not giving you a competitive edge. It's not um, getting you access to that purse or anything. But what it can do is if you do somehow lure lure, like sponsor team members or, you know, really anyone into your your room or like into the vulnerable gameplay, you could create a backdoor on their system. Um, Well, I should say you could, the team, the decoded vast io team actually reached out to valve who patched it in january so this is this is should be fixed if you've updated and kept up with it but the idea is you know you don't have to target that pool you can get on someone else's machine and if you find out that person may be on a sponsored team then you could start grab gathering you know financial information and possibly continue your attack from there so i mean there's many possibilities especially when you say remote code execution and backdoor and like the same article but it was just it seemed really interesting because a lot of video game highlights or articles i normally read or you know podcasts that i've listened to that mention video games they always talk about hacks and how they DDoS, the team they were playing or how they gathered information, you know, where this is completely different because this looks like just initial access. Like they use Dota 2 as the initial access, which, you know, I thought was really interesting. But what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah. So I was, you know, I kind of went down the same path. I saw this and I was like, oh, well, usually when people take advantage of, you know, coding games, it's it's to figure out how to cheat. Right. Uh, But then I started thinking, you know, it's interesting that as, you know, the decades change and there's a much more larger population that just plays games in general. Games kind of don't fall in their own separate category. I mean, they're just software you install on the computer, right, and people are targeting what are, you know, they, they target popular softwares to get after their targets. You know, when you think of like Microsoft Office type stuff or Adobe type stuff. I mean, that's stuff that we all commonly use and games are kind of in that realm. And especially when you pick a game that's you know really popular that might have a lot of intended targets there but so i kind of thought of like maybe you know games are kind of a little more riskier than you know people would usually think in that kind of perspective but i also noticed that they mentioned the use of ngrok for the cnc and if you're not familiar with ngrok it's kind of a way to basically get out a firewall or a added environment and you base you set up uh Basically, a server in any kind of public infrastructure, or you can—I think—inGrok actually lets you use whatever they have. You create an accounts there, and then you can just call out to any port that's considered open in the firewall. So, any—you know—a lot of times when people configure firewalls, they'll say, "Oh, we want to allow web from at least this subnet or something like that." No specific destination IPs. Well, that opens up any kind of communication over those ports. Like just because the ports specified for a specific service doesn't mean it needs to be used that way, and that's where attackers take advantage of that with tools like—inGrok. There's also another tool just to make people aware it's called fast reverse proxy basically kind of does the same thing and it's available on GitHub. And I actually saw some articles where this was being used for, you know, similar type of, um, effect. So, uh, that part stood out to me and I know we've looked at Ngrok with some adversaries and built some stuff around that as well. So, uh, those are the kind of pieces I pick up on. Like like I said, I see all the code they pull out and it's kind of interesting to see that they went to that detail, but it's kind of hard to say, well, how would I detect things like this? but when you see behaviors that you know other adversaries could be using or that may be really effective in your environment those are the things I like to really highlight and so that's what stood out to me
1: yeah and you know, now that you're saying that you know so it's interesting so you know where can you download these games from and now that and you said that video games are becoming more important and you know my mind automatically goes to steam right hmm. and now that you say video games are a target it kind of makes me think All right, well, we've seen malicious apps be published in the Google Play Store and the Apple Play or Apple Store um, as an initiation vector. We've seen, you know, supply chain attacks. So, you know, everyone's trying, or there's a lot of activity where they're not even focusing on the target themselves. They're focusing on the targets or targets that are related to their main target. You wonder, like, all right, is this just like the tip of the iceberg where they're finding, you know, these uh, vulnerabilities in video games, and then are they gonna slowly move to those higher, you know, like Steam or the places where you can download them? Because we've seen, you know, repositories get infected as well. So, I don't know, it's just, it is an interesting flow. Whereas, you know, back in the good old days, they would just target you.
0: <laughs> the good old days, <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, I think uh, I think we beat that dead horse. Uh, maybe I'll go yeah. to Dota too, tonight, who knows. <laughs> but what do you got next?
0: So I'm going to hit a big topic here. So, you know, this is something where I'll spend some time kind of walking through my thoughts here, but you know, a lot of times you'll see these big um, end of year reports or things like that. And they're always, you know, they're well written. There's a lot of really cool graphs and they're also really long. So I feel like a lot of security professionals, as much as they like, Oh, that's interesting. They don't really kind of like crawl through it and see what actually stands out or what might be applicable. So I'm actually looking at IBM Security X-Force Threat Intelligence Index of 2023. Um, and, you know, I as I walk through these, some of the things come to mind. And, you know, I, I guess I'm going to kind of like insights to how I think about these things when I walk through them. And one of the things that I do is try to validate at least how I think about things. Um, so, for instance, you know, they kind of start out and one of their big highlights they hit on a, a couple of times throughout the article were what are the actions on objective for the, the cases they had to respond to and interestingly enough the ins- installation of backdoors outperformed ransomware uh, you know 21% to 17% of the, the cases they responded to and you know uh, to me you know it kind of makes sense they were saying primarily because there's more value if you can have persistence in an environment you can get more you know monetary stuff with extortion and exfil data or just access in itself so that's kind of why, but, you know, when I think of the things I like to hunt for, the two primary tactics are persistence and execution, because if there's persistence, it means there's going to be something to find. And execution, that's where you'll, weird things will stand out the most in my mind. So it kind of lined up with like, okay, so, you know, at least I like to hunt for these types of things. And it makes sense because they seem to be more popular. So, you know, my efforts are are in the right place. And then the other thing was, you know, they talked about what's the largest impact and you know, it said extortion was the the number one impact. Now, they they did say data exfil, so if you combined ex exfil data or data stolen data and extortion, it made up like 40% of the impact. So then it kind of goes around like, okay, do I have the capabilities to see a large amount of data being moved from any single point in my network, right? So I kind of wrap my head around can I statistically kind of show that, or what would that look like, or do I have you know ways to hunt for how data might be collected? Uh, so you know those kind of become top of mind and it gives me things to either research or think about or see if I even know about these types of topics to begin with and then the other thing I like is you know they always talk and you look at any of these reports, they always talk about fishing, so fishing metrics I think are always interesting, but the the uh fishing uh metrics they had here were most of uh, the fishing that were seen and successful were ones with attachments versus links. And it's pretty significant, but they also talked about fishing as a service. And I know we've talked about fishing as a service on here before, like, oh, this could be interesting how this could change, you know, the amount of fishing we might see. They only saw 2% of the initial vectors being from fishing as a service. So it doesn't seem like that's a really mature vector yet. Not saying that it won't become a problem down the road, but it just seems like I think sometimes phishing is more of a personal attack to be, if you wanted to make it really successful. So maybe that's why phishing as a service just isn't, it's like too obvious maybe. So something to consider there, but it was interesting that public facing apps were actually the top initial vector, uh, even beating out phishing, which I mean, I guess kind of makes sense when we start seeing some really big vulnerabilities kind of hitting out there that are still being, you know, not being remediated you know, properly and then showing up in the news for different um, intrusions and things. But, you know, it kind of puts that in perspective as far as, you know, what kind of things would I look for most and why? Um, And then they had like the average number of of clicks per like, uh, or impacted users per campaign. That's always interesting to me because I remember having to do metrics on, you know, the fish tests and be like, oh, when we had three people, you know, click on something and they're like, oh, that's bad or good or whatever, depending on how you look at your data. And I always hated going off that metric, but the the big thing here was they said on average 93 users were impacted per campaign, which went up from 75 users. So I feel like, man, if 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 you're doing some phishing testing and you don't and you have really really low click rate, maybe your phishing testing doesn't mimic what phishing is actually being seen out there. They even had the the max numbers for a campaign that they saw, and they were 4,000 users impacted. So then it also thinks about like, well, gosh, if that happened to us, how will we identify that? And what would we do to remediate that? So, you know, it kind of gets you thinking about what what I do in that situation to help prepare either processes or, you know, what data you have available to even, you know, try to root some things out. I mean, I thought that was really interesting. But the one metric I like that they don't touch on when it comes to fishing is uh, how, what was the, the, how quickly did the fish get identified and did it get identified by a security team or a person reporting it? Cause I think that's more important. Like once you know, something's landed, I think you can respond to it successfully. It's the longer it sits is where the risk really lies. So it's like, Oh, was it within the hour or minutes? Not how many people were impacted by it. That report time I think is really important to capture. Um, and then the one thing I thought was a good, interesting way to hunt, And I was thinking about this when I was looking at this data, but it was the top spoof brands year over year. So they show like what brands are usually used in these phishing campaigns, you know, Microsoft being number one for the past two years. So then it was like, well, maybe it might make sense to look at just like subject lines that have some sort of keyword associated with those uh, and being sent from domains that aren't owned by those because they only had the top 10. So it's probably pretty easy to do to either hunt for some, some things like that to kind of help catch those. I mean, you can turn that into detection pretty quick once you know um, what the volume looks like and you kind of fine tune some things. But, you know, some creative ideas to look at some things that, you know, obviously they're getting through if they're if they're being seen. So, um, and then, you know, they, they talked about vulnerabilities. You know, that's always a, a topic in these reports. And I like to look at vulnerabilities compared to exploits and they did a pretty good job showing the growth. Obviously vulnerabilities are growing year after year as far as the number being discovered. But exploits are growing ever so slightly, but same pretty consistent. And I think that kind of puts that perspective of just because there's vulnerabilities doesn't mean people are going to be interested in using them. The target kind of determines that, you know, if it's a software or something that's vulnerable, publicly exposed and used by a lot of people, those are the ones you obviously would, you know, that's how you'd rate them as criticality. I know like the CV, the CVSS score, uh, you know, they try to give you a good rating, but it's not it doesn't really cover that that criteria, like, is it a really popular software that's commonly used everywhere? Is it usually publicly exposed? Like, that's not part of that equation. And I think that needs to be part of that risk rating when you people think about vulnerabilities. And then if it's exploitable, obviously, help prioritize the right things, because obviously, we're still seeing where things aren't getting patched or handled. Um, So, you know, that's always good to keep in mind. And then the ransomware duration, this was interesting, too. Um, So the ransomware duration, they talked about Where they've seen, you know, in 2019, it was, you know, around two months of dwell time for the attack duration to happen. Well, now it's down to about three days. And that's not really to scare people, but, you know, something that, you know, it just shows that it's a very scripted, like, attack. Some cases where, you know, they know we're going to get in, we're going to do this. So it's like they have their whole operation kind of, they've practiced it for so long. But it also means it's repeatable and it kind of, you know, fingerprintable is how I look at it. So if you start studying some of these attacks and learning kind of what are the common techniques they're using, I think three days isn't something to necessarily worry about. But, you know, obviously you got to be active enough in looking for these things. Um, so that, that was interesting. And also, you know, it might prove out that maybe the way certain environments are segmented or, or access is, is granted because, you know, really what they're looking for is the right amount of access to hit the environment at scale. Um, so people should really look at, well, what are the protections we have in place for that? And how do we monitor those types of things? Um, that's a good thing to, you know, kind of keep in mind when you see those numbers change. And then, you know, they, they went into some like, uh, activity as far as groups and they brought up hacktivists. I know hacktivists never really come up a lot. I know anonymous usually kind of hits the news when there's some things, but you know, that's the group that's probably most popular. But now with the war efforts stuff going on, you know, activists, our hacktivists are very emotionally driven. And that is a very obviously emotional topic, depending on, you know, either side you're on as far as that, that whole whole debacle. But you know, it kind of empowers these people to feel like they're doing something with cause. And so those threat groups might actually kind of come up more on your radar. Now, granted, it's more DDoS type things and, and stuff to or defacement type stuff to possibly worry about. But now, you know, I usually don't spend too much time worrying about hacktivists, but you know, knowing what they may try to do. And knowing that, that that's a possibility is always good to keep, you know, in front of mind. And then, you know, they some of the other attacks that I did not expect to see really at all was kind of the re-emergence of, you know, the USB spreading worms. They said they saw a lot of the Raspberry Robin, uh, which, you know, it's interesting because it's there's social engineering required and some physical access. But I mean, this is the kind of technique that gets past all those security controls if you don't have really good management of how, USB devices are being used and they're seeing a lot of it peaking in the oil and gas manufacturing and transportation industries. So, you know, something that, you know, I think is easily solved, but like how, if you're going to hunt for, you know, where USBs are being used or misused, like this might be something where you might not necessarily looking for a threat specifically, but you want to understand that your people are doing the right things because ultimately you can, you know, design the best architected environment or air gap it completely like you would see with Stuxnet. And sure enough, a USB can get past all of that. So so make sure you kind of understand some of those things, especially if you if you build environments specifically to be protected that way. And then they started to touch on some of the new ways people were getting, you know, phishing attachments and things through with the discuss of, you know, how macros have been locked down. And they talked about, you know, how their attackers are starting to use ISOs and LNKs. And we've seen that. We've talked about that a number of times. But one thing I did learn from this article that I did not know, and we've talked about the mark of the web before when it came to um, the OneNote technique to try to get people to fish people with OneNote doc type stuff because it doesn't get mark of the web, which if you don't know what mark of the web is, it's usually associated with uh, NTFS file structure. Windows typically uses their hard drives when they format them, and it allows you to put streams of data onto files, which is kind of like hidden data, and attach that. And with the mark of the web, what Windows will do, if a file comes from the web, it'll create that data stream on that file so that it can be tagged as this came from the internet. So it has policies that will say, well, I trust this or not, or give you warnings and things like that. Well, apparently ISOs is another one of those files that does not get the mark of the web. So Didn't know that until I read this, but, you know, kind of makes even more sense now. There might be other types of file formats that if they don't get stamped with Mark of the Web, you might be able to predict they potentially be used in future attacks. So kind of thinking about that. And then the last little bit that I want to touch on is they always do breakouts of like regional or industry trends and I think this is kind of interesting, but I always like to, like, you know, if I function in a specific industry, am I seeing the same things that they're seeing or am I seeing different things? And so for instance, you know, I previously worked in energy you know, sector and so their whole, when they broke down some of the things they were seeing, they were saying, Hey, they were seeing a lot of public facing initial access. That was like 40% of initial access they were seeing as far as compromises. So is that like a, a patching problem, like if they're getting hit, like, and you start thinking, do we patch, you know, in a reasonable amount of time? I know it's interesting when you look at these industries, they're usually governed by compliance, but compliance usually doesn't say something has to be patched in a certain amount of time. It just usually means you have to have a plan to patch, like you have to develop the whole plan and approved and go through your processes. And so sometimes, you know, depending on what it is, the plan might be, well, we're not going to patch that for a year. Well, think about those things when you start saying that public facing things are getting you know, slammed in your industry. Uh, or spear phishing, you know, with links. Apparently links was actually more popular than the attachments for some of the intrusions. So, you know, that might be like, a how was our user awareness training? Do we see that same thing? And then, you know, obviously with the links and the spear phishing, it seems like botnets were also a common thing that were being discovered in some of the intrusion stuff. But yeah, so like that's kind of when I walk through these articles, I, you know, I love the quick pulls I can see from graph data and, and numbers. But like I always try to think, well, what would I do in that situation, or what would I do with that data, or, or how would I solve that problem, or do I know nothing about this? And it kind of gives me a hit list of, hey, I should probably get learn up on some of these, you know, topics or you know, scenarios that I might not have the experience. So it kind of helps drive, you know, where I go next as far as spending research and time. So yeah, I dumped all that. What do you got, Lee?
1: <laughs> nothing. I'm moving on. No. So a couple things that. I saw as well. Yes, looking at the initial access vector, the public facing applications did beat out phishing spear phishing attachments by 1%. But because they broke that I think this goes into the the graph data that you're talking about. Like it's a great, you know, it's a great visual and especially if you're looking at it from a sub-technique perspective because if you're familiar with the minor att framework, you got tactics, which are your overarching goals, you got your techniques, which are a general sense of how to get you know how to meet that tactic or that goal and then you have your sub techniques which are more specific uh, like they broke down fishing into spear fishing attachment spear fishing link and spear fishing via service but if you add all that up together fishing mm-hmm. still beats everything out yeah, oh, yeah. i mean just because yeah, it's tried and true still 41 percent of the attack surface leading to the initiation vector so don't <laughs> I guess I should just say, don't be fooled that they are not using phishing anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Also, you know, questions rise. <laughs> like the, the the ransomware attack duration that you mentioned, like that blew my mind. Going from 60 plus days to four or less than four, you know, it's, it's kind of a worry. I know you say you don't wanna scare people, which I'm not gonna try to either, but you know, we're seeing more variants that are involved and I think one other thing that I'm surprised that you didn't mention was their section on the cyber-related developments of Russia's war in Ukraine. Now, you know, we all know what's going on over there, uh, and we've seen what is really, um, what's really happening. Like when you have big events like this, and you have a lot of adversaries come together, whether they be state-sponsored mercenaries or whatever the case, you're always like, it always seems like there's all these new things that you learn. Like, uh, you know, you have new wipers being used, right? They they listed a bunch of those. There's more ransomware coming out. But then you see the old ones being used. it's just amazing at, like, you are seeing a global, worldwide <laughs> reported cyber attack. And, you know, right. no one's going to shy away from reporting their findings when it comes to this and it's always interesting to see what's going on and what's spilling out of that geo geopolitical issue you know and the big thing is seeing that all spill out you know what's getting into i guess like you know the public domain or what's being what may have only been known to certain apts does everyone know about now and now it's like open source you know those those are the things that come to mind you know what is the side effect of this being on such a global scale of, you know, from a malware perspective or in cybersecurity perspective. Also, I had a third point and I'm slipping my mind. Let me see if I can find it real quick.
0: Well, the one thing I wanna say while you look, when you talk about the ransomware, the three-day thing, something that we still see common is the techniques being used across the groups are still pretty like aired. So I feel like when you do spend the time, like we we find that they don't really reinvent the wheel, you know? Um, yeah. So that's why I guess I'm not as worried about that as, as much as some others might be, because I see that trend.
1: And my third point slipped away into the abyss, probably never to be found again, or I'll remember it when I'm talking next to the next article.
0: <laughs> well, you want to start the next article and see if it comes back?
1: Yeah, if I just completely sidetrack. All right, so <laughs> my next article is from Proofpoint, um, and it is labeled, EA or threat actor 569 Ghoulish and beyond. Now, I know I covered a Ghoulish article a couple weeks ago where North Korea was seen using it or it was related to North Korea. But proof point in this time they took um, a much technical deep dive of the infection itself. Um so or sorry the injection itself, which I always find fascinating. I know I said earlier I'm not a coder, um, so like when I look at things of malware or you know, malware reports and threat intel, I like to look at more, I guess, if you can think of it as more of the perspective from the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain. You know, looking through the stages or the MITRE attack framework where I can say, all right, this is initial access. You know, this is defensive evasion versus, you know, zooming in into one of the aspects of the attack. But I found this very, um, very interesting. I'm not gonna try to explain it because I'm still trying to understand it myself, especially when it's like, it's a lot, it's a lot of code. So, um, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. But at the very end, which, you know, as I was stumbling through this article, I found it interesting that they mentioned one of their sections is mistakes, mistakes, code deployment and attribution. So they, we always talk about the human aspect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's interesting that they would highlight that themselves, or the proof point would highlight that, saying, "You know, this is what we found. This is what we, you know, led up to it, and this is how we were able to attribute it to the threat actor." And going through it, yeah, it it's just it's like that. Those, you know, serial killer movies or like the scary movies where you're walking through, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we found you because of this simple mistake you made." Yeah, I found those interesting. But what I found very valuable from this report. I'm not, I'm not saying this wasn't, you know, this wasn't valuable. It's, you know, more valuable to me because I can understand the stuff at the very bottom versus the main bulk of it. But they have um, a bunch, of, and I did remember my point. I'll get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> they broke down the attack later on into just graphs, just say, you know how you know how the attack flowed, um, what the different stages looked like. And of course, they you know included in indicators of compromise but those simple graphs really helped me understand you know okay i don't really understand the code i don't really understand the processes they, that they use there but you know from a simpleton like me the the arrows and the objects really helped out understand well okay i don't understand what this is but what does it lead to and they did a very good job displaying that on a um, on a level that i can understand um so you know Red intel reports some you might not understand but some you might yeah so I'm going to pause there before I ask you what you think about it. And I'm going to go back to IBM report. You were talking about phishing as a service. Now, and I was, and I always think, you know, the threat actors are like us. They have help desks. They have different teams. You know, they have their code developers. They have their malware developers. They have their, you know, recon, you know, you name it. Right. And it's always interesting that Coming up with like, you know, now they have, what was it? Initial access brokers. Um, And it really looks like their business model is following the same as legit. Like, okay. So I want to say it looks like it's reinforcing that they are working the way a legitimate business or enterprise runs.
0: Oh yeah. You have your
1: phishing service. So, you know, you have your team that specializes in that, right? And then you get your initial access brokers that say, hey, you know, you want access to this? you know. Here's what we have access to, but who do you want? Then you go get your malware somewhere, and then you go say, "Hey, I want to hire your group. Once we get hands on keyboards, and by the way, you know, we'll split all the you know the findings." And it's just interesting as usual so, to see this come to light.
0: I've always heard that ransomware has the best help desk. You know, just talk about like professional services, like, "Oh, we we can help you." Pay us really well and help you decrypt all your stuff because you know that's the support they offer. And it's like, that's interesting. Well, if
1: (laughs) you had a couple million dollars, like if you, hey, we got a Fortune 500 company, yeah, or a Fortune 10 company, like we can, you know, provide you with multi million dollars, or you can just retire now. Um, you throw that at someone. (laughs) I mean, the motivation is insane,
0: right? Yeah, Yeah.
1: All right, sorry, we'll go back to my other <laughs> article.
0: Yeah, so it, it kind of cracked me up because, you know, reading through how they took advantage of, like, injecting and running that code by having people visit compromised, you know, sites they have compromised, kind of took me back to, like, how I was exposed to uh, cyber threats in the earliest days of my life, right? When it became a thing like, oh, there's there's malicious websites out there, and they do these things. and and even when you see some of the screenshots of the sites, they compromise. They look like those old school kind of websites with you with the pop-ups, like all sorts of hair, all over the place. And uh, so it kind of took me back. And it also reminded me of a story when I was actually trying to to work on a, how zip files were used to take advantage of people. And I went to a site just to pull down the standard WinZip. And the big download button downloaded WinRAR instead because it was an <laughs> ad, It was a download. I'm like, you know, when you move too fast, things happen, right? And I was mad because it could do what I needed it to do, except for I was looking for specifically that executable. Um, so I was like, all right. Uh, so that kind of kind of kind of took me back, made me laugh a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things where they they did a really good job kind of walking through. The multi-stage and you know complexity and you know, one of the things i thought was also interesting was uh they use the tds I'm trying to remember what that stands for
1: uh traffic directing services
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so to help help basically land the right payload to be the most effective which i thought was really you know it's interesting it's it's more sophisticated basically it can take the fingerprint from your cookies or you know user agent type things or whatever and make sure they're delivering the correct payload based on what machine you're using or what software you're using. So I think that's always a fascinating thing. You know, it's like a step above even though their compromises might not look so sophisticated from the, the graphics and things you see. They do force people to click on things. So, you no, know, it's something that's it's hard to defend your users against because can't really control your user's overall behavior. Uh, but I remember I tried to attack some of these things by using, um, what was it, uh, the Amazon scoring? Not Amazon scoring, uh, the ranking system. Remember we did this, Alexa, there we go. Oh, the, the Alexa, Alexa ranking. Yeah. yeah, so it was always interesting if, if you were to look at, uh, I did a, basically took data of about, you know I think it was like 80 million proxy logs, pulled out all the unique domains that were seen Went, you know worked with some people on the team on this and found out on average there's only 27,000 unique domains and then do the Alexa enrichment and see which ones had really 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 poor Alexa scores uh, kind of showed you like hey because some of these sites are like sites I don't think you would naturally go to or organically go to so that might be a way to kind of hunt for these types of infections if you do something you know similar with data to say well this is a really really unique rare site that doesn't Isn't very popular amongst anybody, or doesn't even have a ranking. It might be suspect to something like this too. So
1: that's a good idea, especially when it comes to uh, searching for like anomalies and stuff.
0: Good. Sometimes you got to add data to to get value out of data, right? So context. Yeah, I'm a big, big proponent of that. So speaking of data, the last article I wanted to touch on, and I'll be, I'll be kind of brief because I know we're kind of running, you know, longer than normal because of the big deep dive, but and it was a hackers news article, and I kind of liked it. There's a couple of things I thought they missed, but the title is How to Use AI in Cybersecurity and Avoid Being Trapped. AI comes up, I mean AI, machine learning, um, big topics, a lot of money around security products to try to utilize it. And they kind of talk about like the pros and cons. And they talk about you know how, how fast it can be, using lots of amounts of data. There's could be some automations, the algorithms can be, you know, effective. Uh, but then they give you a kind of a list of things to be cognizant of when you're de- using it or deploying it. And one was, you know, I liked it. They said define clear goals and objectives. Really like this because some people like I feel like they get the AI and like it gets marketed in such a way we're like, oh, we get this and it solves all these things. Like, well, it might solve a lot of things, but figure out what is really, really good at solving specifically, because you'll need to build your processes and, you know, use your other technologies to help with uh, other areas that it might not be as strong. Like you can't put all your eggs in that same basket. Um so that was the next thing it was like understanding the limitations of the AI. There are limitations, obviously, biases and false positives. Uh, and then it did talk, I like this too, they talked about making sure investing in training and education of your people to understand how this is working, right? I think it's important to use tools. Uh, you know, there there is something to be said about having a tool that just does things for you and it seems like magic. But when you have something like AI, where you kind of have, it's more black box than some people realize, especially if you don't understand what's really going on, but you can understand some of those limitations if you actually understand how it works. So those kind of go twofold. And then, you know, they said test and validate, you know, it's always good to, how do you burn in or how do you test or how could you validate things? But the the two points that they did not bring up, um, and it is based on precision and recall. So a lot of times when models are being built to detect things, it'll it'll give you kind of a percentage basis on its performance. It can kind of measure its performance based on the test data that you're validating things on. And the two main values to be aware of is recall and precision. And it gives you like, oh, it'll give you a percentage, like it scored 86% of recall or whatever. So recall is really important if you're worried about overlooked cases or false negatives, right? Like it, it is more costly to miss the security event that is, that, you know, that you needed to investigate um than you know, and having and having more false positives essentially that could happen. If recall is too high and precision is too low, that's what will happen. You know, you won't miss anything, but then you're also not ruling anything out. But precision is really the measurement for you know how important or how cost, costly are false positives, right? So if if you're if, if something where it's like, we don't have the resources and time, we can't be spending a ton of time on false positives or we have to have, or even knowing that there could be a lot of false positives based on which, how that model scores, then you know, maybe there's some automation and contextualization we have to add after the fact to help root some of those things out before it hits a person, right? When you think about your processes. And I feel like those are two things that never really get talked about enough in these solutions, say, oh, we have this ML thing, and we have whatever. Well, what is the recall and what is the precision? And then, what is the problem trying to be solved? And what is our false po- positive or false negative tolerances? And how how are we how are we going to you know manage that if we were to go forward with the solution? I think that's the kind of the, the thought process that always should be in place when looking at these solutions. So that's kind of my takeaway on that. But I just wanted to bring that up.
1: I guess I have a question for you. Machine learning is not my strongest. Can a can the organization or the vendor that is pushing out this AI could they help you measure those metrics? Or is that real is that reliant on
0: it's it is measured every time. So when you typically now typically is more more on the supervised versus unsupervised models, but when you have your training, say you have a bunch of data that's labeled that you're gonna use to train a model. And then sometimes they do like 60-40 where they'll like train it on 60% of the data, and then 40% they'll they'll say, let's how well let's see how well it did based on training on 60% of the data. Um and then that's like their validation set. And when they run through that validation of like, okay, that we think the model is tweaked and trained from this set of part of the data. Now we'll run it against this data and we'll score to see how it did. That scoring to see how it did will always return your recall and precision based on to your it's like the training stats essentially they get generated every time you train so those should be available depending on the type of model but most models you should be able to get that um, or there's there's at least the right questions to ask i mean i'm assuming when you're dealing with a business person trying to sell you some of these things they're gonna be like well i gotta talk to our engineers or data science people sure and maybe they don't want to make those numbers public but i mean it's it's really good to have an understanding of where those numbers sit even on like t-shirt sizes like oh our recall is really good precision is not so good or vice versa they're both moderate I mean, that would be helpful to understand how much noise or how much value are we going to gain from this you know because of you know whatever so that's kind of how i look at that okay
1: and the like i said because ai is not my major point i did look at these of the highlights that they call out and I'm going to repeat them. So it's define clear goals and objectives, mm-hmm. understand the limitations of AI. But in this case, if you think about it is understand the limitations of anything, your, your tool you're bringing in, invest in training and education and test and validate your solution, right? If we leave AI out of those highlights.
0: You should be doing that anyway. <laughs>
1: <yeah>. Absolutely. Anything <laughs> you're bringing into your environment. This, like, that was the biggest takeaway I saw from this article. That even if you could put whatever tool or whatever solution or whatever brand in there, and those four highlights are amazing like, define clear goals and objectives, understand the limitation of the solution, invest in training and education, and test and validate your solution. If you approach that, or if you take those four steps and approach it, and I hope, you know, there's some CISOs or management or whoever's listening that they, you know, adopt this process, just these four easy steps into anything I bring into their organization. I think they will be um, much more successful than just bringing something in and, you know, the proverbial easy button that people think cybersecurity tools, you know, just take the time, figure it out, train your people on it, then validate it. That that, that was my big takeaway.
0: Cool, yeah, so I know we're getting right here, the kind of the top of the hour for us. So let me I want to make sure to make mention of some things we've making available that uh, people, if they're interested, should definitely check out. One is we've got our top cover, which is kind of the threat hunting for management. And what does you know our threat hunting program look like? How can it be run? What are some things you could do? That'll be held March first from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that's that's going to be some really interesting insights. I, I kind of have seen behind the curtain a little bit. And I think it's really fascinating to me as well. So hope you know people that you know like what they hear here will enjoy that as well then we also have our our next live podcast we march 16th from 7 to 8 30 p.m eastern standard time fully interactive discord discussions with you know the folks that want to you know jump in make comments or whatever and you know that's where we really kind of touch a lot more on our experience on topics on kind of personal stories and anecdotes it's usually a pretty good time and then lastly The workshop that, Lee, you'll be hosting with a lateral movement on March 22nd from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's really cool because that's the full hands-on, work with real data, work with some tools, focusing on specific techniques as the workshops are kind of broken up over that Lee kind of walks through, which is great. And so with that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up next week. So that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 27th, 2023. So thanks Mm -hmm. for joining. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the out of the woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. So you never miss an episode for more information or to connect with cyborg security. Check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media.